Welcome back to Couple of Criminals. My name is Mariah. And my name is Anton, and we are your average couple reviewing your not-so-average crimes. This episode is number 17 of a 50-part series that we are doing where the episodes are based on a different crime in each state in the United States and are in alphabetical order. So today's case will be based on a crime in Kentucky. On a side note, before I get into the case, I would love to tell a funny story or two that recently happened that also reminded me of another funny story, so here you go. When Anton and I first moved into our current home about a year and a half ago, we got all settled into bed on our first night, and of course, we were in a new environment and a much larger space than our 600-square-foot apartment beforehand. So my mind was on edge a little bit that night. My husband and I fell asleep, and all of a sudden, in the midst of my deep sleep, I hear the bedroom door open and I pop up out of bed and automatically think it is an intruder in our house, in our bedroom. And the only thing I can get out of my mouth in that moment is, excuse me. That's not how she said it, but it was really funny how she said it. It, Excuse me? (laughs) Instantly, the figure starts laughing and I'm so groggy. And my husband answers and said, It is just me. And then he went on to say, excuse you. We have laughed with each other and with family so many times because I don't know why I thought I needed to be proper with a potential intruder in our bedroom. What did I think saying excuse me would do to someone? And it was probably when I said it, you were probably shocked too coming into the bedroom because you had let the dogs out or something. Well, if it wasn't bad enough, last Wednesday, my husband was out at his normal weekly guys night. And I was heading to bed and hopping into the shower beforehand. I had assumed that my husband had left 30 minutes prior. So as far as I knew, I was home alone with my cute two pups and everything was good and normal. I am preparing to get into the shower and all of a freaking sudden, I hear our front door open and close downstairs. I am standing there, obviously in my pre-shower attire, or what Anton would call a bathing suit. The birthday suit. (laughs) The birthday suit, not bathing suit. And I am freaking out. My knees are trembling. I my adrenaline starts to rush. The dogs are barking. And in that moment when I heard the door close, I yelled Anton's name three times with no apparent response. It was just silent. At that moment, I did not think to run for my phone. And instead, I ended up grabbing a bathroom towel to cover up because I was in my birthday suit. And then I was able to get me and the pups into our bedroom. And I called Anton from my phone and told him to run home because he was just up the street. And I was yelling that an intruder was in the house. And I was just yelling run on the phone. And he ends up booking it home from a few houses down. And when he gets home, I am in a bath towel crying and my knees are shaking and he realized that the supposed intruder was actually him because he had just left later than I knew and the door opening and closing was just him leaving for guys night and because I was upstairs I didn't actually hear the door lock behind him again the first thing I thought of was a flippin bath towel like what was that gonna do machete in our closet Not our weapons that are in the bedroom. We have like knives everywhere in the bedroom from one of our uncles who has bought us way too many knives. But I may be... But we're very thankful for all (laughs) of them, yes. Yes, we are. But of course, a bath towel was going to be my saving grace in this. So I... you could have uh, whipped them, (laughs) right? Yeah, I may be a true crime fanatic, but dadgum, I need to work on my house invasion strategies. Yes. Yeah. 
well, happy days, listeners. If you can take anything away from these stories, be it that you should not have manners with an attacker or worry about grabbing a bath towel in the midst of an intruder downstairs. All right, well, enough with that nonsense. Right now I have my sisters in town, so instead of Anton doing our regularly broadcasted joke of the day, my beautiful sister Keely will be doing it in his stead. Take it away, Keely, and then I will get right into the Kentucky-based case. All right, hello, y'all. Okay, here's my joke. Bob and his wife started dieting a week ago. His wife proposed that they should have a cheat day today. She brought home McDonald's and KFC wings, and Bob brought home his secretary. Oh, God. <laughs> That's when a I good joke. When I read it to Anton, I really, Anton was like, oh, he's <laughs> wide-eyed. Yeah, and of course, it had to be KFC-related because it is a Kentucky-based case today. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Kaylee, for being here and giving us our joke of the day. You are welcome. All right, I want to give a precautionary warning to listeners today that this case does involve some sexual assault to minors and brief mentions of suicide. Today's case actually doesn't begin in Kentucky. It begins in a small county in Ohio in 1952. Donald Harvey was born in April of 1952 and was the oldest of three siblings. Shortly after Donald was born, his parents Ray and Goldie Harvey ended up moving to Boonville, Kentucky. Now, I do not know a lot about Kentucky or the geographic surroundings very well, but when I looked how far Louisville, Kentucky was from that of Boonville, it is about a 160-mile drive. And I resonated with Louisville because I know where that's at. Yeah. And Boonville is a very small, quaint town that as of 2021 only had a whopping 157 residents. We could see that in an in-and-out drive-thru on a Thursday evening. Yeah, that's small. Very, very small. This small town was close to the eastern slopes of the Appalachian Mountain Range. It sounds like a great spot to, you know, settle down and raise a family if you're looking for that rural, self-sufficient life, because a lot of it is farming land. Ray and Goldie, to most, appeared to love their children immensely and nurtured and cared for them the best that they could. However, the relationship that they had with one another was poor and suffered, and I can only assume that it was heavily related to their tobacco farm that was suffering at that time. And this is the 50s, so tobacco farming was a very big, prosperous industry at that time. Outside of this, the Harvey children were raised very well. It is said that when Donald was just a baby, his father had subsequently fallen asleep while holding him and ended up dropping him accidentally on his head. And because of this injury, his soft spot that is on the skull of a baby's head actually never fully closed. This brain injury didn't prove to have caused any instant problems or immediate problems that the family could tell. It didn't affect his behavior at all. So it was shrugged off and deemed, you know, it didn't do anything. Yeah, almost. But what did prove to cause problems with Donald was the continued sexual assaults that happened to him from his uncle and a male neighbor down the road. This constant molestation caused Donald to be very quiet and antisocial in school and other public places and ended up being teased by classmates because of this behavior. Even with all the teasing and humiliation he received from his peers at a young age, he still ended up getting good grades and was known as a teacher's pet to those around him. And... In my honest opinion, I don't think there is anything wrong with being a teacher's pet, maybe because I was one, but I consider it elementary school networking. No, there is nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, he was building connections at a young age, and that can start at any age. So with school pressures and constant abuse from those close to him, it caused significant emotional and physical damage to Donald. At this time, he is now a freshman at local Boonville High School, and it is about 1968. Like I said previously, he had good grades, but for some reason he was bored of it all. The monotony, 
the ease of schoolwork. It just wasn't enough for him. So I mean, he, I understand schoolwork's pretty boring. I know, but you're not just going to drop out. No, no, of course not. But it is very boring. Yeah, that's very true. So like I mentioned, he dropped out as only a freshman because of this boredom that he faced. Now, did you see anywhere of how many students were at this school at the time? There are only 150 residents at this town. I can only imagine that the school probably had like three members. I could only think of maybe 10 kids in the grade. Yeah. And I wonder if it was just a K through 12 school. That would be my assumption for a small town like that. Yeah. After dropping out of school, he moved from Boonville, Kentucky to Cincinnati, Ohio, and there he would have dead-end jobs. For example, he was able to work at a local factory for some time, but ended up being laid off. He then decided to go ahead and get his GED, which he did, and around that time is when he received outreach from his mom back in Kentucky, who encouraged him to come home because his grandmother was dying and he should be there for her last days. Donald agreed and came home to visit his family and his ill grandmother. Donald was visiting his grandma at a hospital known as Marymount Hospital. Like anyone would, he visited her frequently and began to build trust and friendships with those who worked there, and because of the likability nature he portrayed, he ended up landing a job. This couldn't have come at a better time because he was at a crossroad after just getting laid off and ultimately wasn't sure what was next for him, but this answered that. The Marymount Hospital staff were nuns, and the job that Donald was extended was that of a hospital orderly. This position entailed changing bedpans, administering catheters, and giving prescriptions and medications to the patients. Donald had zero medical experience and background. So when I think of an orderly, I can only think of almost like a bouncer at a bar because if I remember from Psych, it was almost like that show. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. It was like that whenever they were at the psychiatric place doing a case. Yeah. And Gus was an orderly. I think he chained, he like did some of the medicine stuff and things like that. But I think they were mainly there to kind of restrain patients too. Yeah. Well, like I was saying, Donald had zero medical experience and background, but was still extended this job and he accepted. I would not be the first person to jump at the opportunity to change a bedpan or administer a catheter. But Donald was, and this would soon be the worst job offer and acceptance that could have ever happened in the history of Marymount Hospital. Now, because Donald had dropped out as a freshman, by the time he was back in Kentucky and working at Marymount, he was only 18 years old. So he was pretty young and Still had life ahead of him. Pretty he, an adult. Yeah. Now. His first few weeks while working were uneventful. He got used to the day-to-day, and to most, it appeared he enjoyed or was neutral to the work and was doing a good job. However, something switched in him after those few weeks working at Marymount. And to this day, no one knows what caused him to flip so severely but he would never be the same again. During a normal evening shift, Donald was doing his rounds and went into a room where an elderly man, Logan Evans, was being treated at the hospital for a stroke. When Donald went to the bedside, the patient then rubbed his own feces all in Donald's face, and this caused him to go into a complete and utter rage, and he ended up smothering the patient with the pillowcase. After he knew Logan had died, he cleaned the room up, including the patient's bedpan, and showered and then called the nurses to the room to report the death. In addition to the death of Logan, during that same time, Donald had administered the wrong catheter to patient James Tyree, which caused him to vomit and bleed and die. With these two deaths, no one ever suspected foul play, and things continued on in the hospital as normal. I mean, it is a hospital, and it didn't look like murder scenes. Yeah. And so it... They just kept going. 
However, not even three weeks had passed since the murders when Donald striked again. An elderly woman, Elizabeth Wyatt, was being treated in the hospital, and Donald overheard her talking about being done, and she was supposedly praying to die. This encouraged Donald to assist in that, and he decided to disconnect her oxygen without her consent, and this then caused her to suddenly die. Even after this death, nothing was ever suspected of anyone, including Donald, and no foul play had ever been predicted like or they assumed. they didn't see that it was unplugged and that she most likely couldn't unplug it? No, I guess not. Or they might have thought she unplugged it? Yeah, I have no idea. Or they just assumed she died of natural causes. That's insane. Just like how when a kid can get away with taking one cookie out of the cookie jar without getting in trouble, and then they may continue to take more and more cookies with no remorse because they're not being caught, this is Donald Harvey. Except in our case, it was not cookies. It was people's lives that were being taken with no remorse. With this feeling of freedom and murder, he would go on to kill at least a dozen more at Marymount Hospital. He would kill patients in various ways, using plastic bags, towels, morphine, and other drugs, tainting oxygen tanks, and then other cruel methods. One case was specifically premeditated in nature. A patient had confronted Donald and said he was trying to kill him, and then the patient proceeded to knock Donald unconscious with his bedpan. But when Donald came to, he ended up coming back to the patient's room later that night and put a coat hanger through his catheter, which then caused a serious infection, and the patient later died a few days later. No one noticed a coat hanger. I have no idea, but it was never considered to be foul play. That is like, they guess, that's just interesting. Yeah. I honestly have no idea how a dozen deaths in one hospital, to, in one hospital did not cause reason for alarm. Yeah. But like, it didn't. I mean, again, like you said, it's a hospital. Death occurs there quite often, most likely. Yeah. And maybe what I'm thinking is, you know, this is just an assumption because I have no idea. Sources didn't say, but maybe he put the catheter in, left it in enough time to cause the infection and then went and changed it out because he did that. That was his job. Yeah, could have been that too. And maybe it was too late, but nobody noticed. It was now March of 1971, and Donald was in handcuffs, not for 12 deaths caused by him at the hospital, but for being drunk and disorderly and for a supposed burglary. While in police custody and interrogation, he not only went on about the theft he had committed, but he actually also spilled everything about the 12 murders he had committed at the hospital he worked at as well. The investigators ended up looking further into his claims, but were actually unable to gather enough evidence to tie him to the crimes he was claiming. So if you think that's the end of our story, it is not. So this man is confessing to killing 12 people, and the police are now just saying that they don't believe him, pretty much. It's a teenager. He has no criminal history, and all they got him for is being drunk and disorderly and burglary. They just don't quickly assume he's killed a dozen people. They think he's just ranting on because he's completely drunk. Uh, okay. Yeah. He ended up going to trial a couple months later for the theft and burglary charge and pleaded guilty and only had to pay a small fine and served no time. Sources vary, but after his burglary charges and fines, it is said that in a suicide attempt, he started a fire and it did not go to plan and he ended up being charged for arson and then only paid a small fine and served no time. What's up with this police force here in this town? I don't know. It was a long time ago, but... It's really rough, and I guess it only that's true, gets worse. Because like arson nowadays, you'd probably be maybe you probably didn't look it up, but in prison for a few years, I would assume maybe a couple months. I think it depends the level. I guess of damage. depends on the damage. Yeah, 
After his arson sentencing, he ended up deciding he needed a change in his life, thank goodness. And he also wanted a change in the work he was doing, so he went on to join the U.S. Air Force. He served less than a year before being discharged from the military, and it was a general discharge. It was never confirmed as to why he was discharged, but there were rumors that Harvey had confessed to severe crimes in Kentucky, which we know, and they didn't want events like that happening within the Air Force, so he was discharged. And again, that was just a rumor. On paper, it was just a general discharge to the public knowledge. It wasn't long after his discharge when Donald began to have severe episodes of depression, and these episodes led him to being admitted into the Veterans Administration Medical Center, or the VA Medical Center in Kentucky. He would spend a couple months at the facility and be treated in the mental ward, and would later be released and then admitted again due to continual depression episodes and thoughts of suicide. During the second visit, he actually made a suicide attempt, which resulted in him being put in restraints and receiving electroshock therapy. After the treatments, which in this second visit, he was there for about two months as well, he was released from the VA Medical Center, and by now it was about October of 1972. During this time of recovery outside of the VA Center, he found part-time nurse aid work at the local Cardinal Hill Hospital. And by June of 73, he was working a second nursing job at another hospital called Lexington's Good Samaritan Hospital. These jobs did not last long, but thankfully no murders occurred during this time as well. He would go on to hold other jobs on the phones and in other clerical positions at different like medical facilities nearby. So he's in his 20s. Yeah, by now. now, Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. By 1975, he was back in Ohio and was now working the night shift at the Cincinnati VA Hospital. The night shift is not as staffed, so his range of responsibility and power was wide and ranged every night he worked. He could be a nursing assistant, he could be housekeeping, he could be administering catheters, and sometimes he was even the assistant in an autopsy. Like, his duties ranged because of night shift. To not have any training or certification in this stuff and to be doing it blows my mind. But here I am telling it and it is what happened. He was comfortable here. Maybe too comfortable. He worked nights, which allowed him to be free to do what he pleased, and that meant getting back to the ways of murder. During the next decade, he would go on to kill 15 patients, but this time he used even more advanced methods. He had increased his abilities. A plastic bag with a wet towel or cloth, rat poison in food, arsenic and cyanide in a morning glass of orange juice, or injecting cyanide wherever and whenever possible. As far as anyone could tell, these deaths were medical, and there is no way it could be foul play. However, for Donald, he was unstoppable. He lived with his boyfriend at the time, and he suspected that his boyfriend was cheating. And this caused him to start drugging his partner's food so that instead of going out and cheating, he would have to stay home all day due to feeling sick because of the poison. He then had an argument with a neighbor, and Donald decided to put hepatitis serum into one of the drinks, and this almost killed her until she was able to get to a hospital and be treated for the infection that the serum had caused. Then, if this neighbor poisoning wasn't enough, another neighbor had eaten a pie that was laced with arsenic from Donald, and she would end up passing away a week after eating the pie due to the poisoning. He would go on to poison his boyfriend's parents, which would cause the father to die, and the mother somehow survived the poisoning. The boyfriend ended up breaking up with him and kicked him out, and for the next two years, Donald continued to poison his boyfriend or ex-boyfriend without him knowing. And there was only one time he ended up being hospitalized, but he never died. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. I just wonder how nobody put two and two together. Well, not just that. Like they never expected 
poisoning at the hospitals. Or never even thought to test for it. Yeah. I don't know. During this time, Harvey lost his jaw because of strange things found in his bag, such as a gun, needles, surgical scissors, a cocaine spoon, and many other items as well. He was fined a small fee and by the hospital was told to resign quietly, which he did. No charge was ever filed against him, which means nothing was ever put on his record. With no record of anything he has done or has been found with, Donald moved on to the next job. And this was now in 1986 with Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati. What began as a part-time nursing aide position soon turned into a full-time position because of the good work he produced. During his time at this hospital, he would murder another two dozen patients by cutting life support machines, putting air into veins, smothering and suffocation, and poison. Again, no one noticed a, this time a life support machine being cut. Well, think about how many people are we at. So 12, 15, 24. I, I, I mean, mean, we're it's over almost at 45. Yeah, we're yeah. almost into the 50s. Yeah. But still, like arsenic poisoning and life supports being cut, not just pulled, cut. That's insane that no one suspected anything for that long. Yeah. It was only in the middle of 1987 that authorities finally became suspicion of the man known as the Angel of Death. Because for some reason or another, Donald Harvey was always around when patients died. This specific patient that caused suspicion was that of John Powell, thankfully. So they're finally catching on is mm -hmm. what it sounded like. He had been in a coma for months, but was improving, and it seemed that recovery was near and that he was going to be coming out of his comatose. Until suddenly, it wasn't, and he drastically passed away. An autopsy was conducted on the body of John, and what they found was not what medical professionals thought they would find. John Powell's body was putting off the smell of almonds, which, this is the sign of cyanide poisoning. And after further testing, that poisoning theory was confirmed. Powell hadn't died due to a sudden decline in his progress in a coma. He had been murdered, and it was time to find out who had done it. After investigating those closest to John Powell, it appeared that everyone was cleared close to him, and there was no sign of a motive either. The next step would be to investigate those at the hospital who were then closest to him, and who also had access to his room, medicines, and his food. And who better to question than that of the angel of death? Everyone knew his nickname, and everyone knew what he was capable of now, including police. Before approaching Harvey with their suspicions, they did their own investigation of him beforehand, and it was no joke that there were so many deaths surrounding this one man, but why? Well, after looking into him, they found jars and jars and more jars of cyanide and arsenic, a mass amount of books on the occult and other poisons, and then the most incriminating piece of all, Harvey kept a diary of all of his murders. Every single one, he detailed them out. So he was keeping them like for a keepsake. Yeah, yeah. Almost as a trophy, almost, in a way. Yeah. After finding this diary, Harvey was then arrested for John Powell's murder and held on a $200,000 bond. Now, he was arrested in Ohio, and Ohio at this time had the death penalty, and Harvey knew that the police were going to uncover everything he had, and he did not want to die. He did not want to get the death penalty, so he settled with a plea bargain. Of course no one wants the death penalty, even after you kill almost 50 people. There's people who ask for the death penalty. I, I just... Well, I'm sure there are, but... This, some people don't want to live and stay behind bars. A lot of people don't yeah. ask for the death penalty, That's is what true. I'm trying to say. Yeah. On August 11, 1987, Donald Harvey sat with police and investigators and admitted to the murder of over 70 people over the course of 17 years. So that's more than what we counted. 
Police were immensely skeptical of such a large number from a man who has never been charged with more than theft and arson. How could someone get away with 70 murders in 17 years? It just goes back to kind of what we've been saying is it's just a hospital. Death occurs there on a daily occurrence. Yeah, it was just deduced to and no one it being inv- medical. And no one investigated it to where yeah. when multiple people started dying, no one put two and two together until then. He was at various sites, so it was never reported. And so it was never on his record. So people just never put it together. A psychiatrist would later come out and say that Harvey was sane and fully competent, but was a compulsive killer. Because of his guilty plea for the murders in Ohio, he was found guilty of 24 counts of murder, four attempted murder, and then one assault, and was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. Then in Kentucky, he pleaded guilty to 12 murders at Marymount Hospital and was sentenced to eight life sentences plus 20 years. They were never able to charge him with the additional murders that he claimed he did due to the lack of evidence, but in total, with all of his sentences, he was never going to be leaving prison anyway. No, there's no way. Yeah. 12 life sentences? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then plus some. Although Harvey avoided the death penalty in his sentencing and wanted to live his day out behind bars, he would end up being beaten to death by a fellow inmate, James Elliott, and died behind bars on March 30th, 2017, so six years ago. Oh, so. I mean, he was behind bars for quite a while still. I think in total they said he was behind bars for about 20 or 30 years. Did it say the reason why he got beat to death? No, but then that guy ended up getting sentenced for it. Well, of course. Yeah. You can't just kill a guy. Yeah. But that is the case of Donald Harvey, the angel of death. I don't think I've ever heard of him. I, I might either. have heard of the nickname, but I don't think I've ever actually gone into the like whole case at all. After researching this, I am flabbergasted that he got away with 70 murders. I mean, as far as we know, 70 murders. Yeah, it could have been more. Could have been we less. I, but he was only charged for what? About 40? 50, 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to Couple of Criminals. We look forward to you being back here next week where Anton will, re- will be reviewing a crime from Louisiana. Until then, this is your Couple of Criminals signing off.